Welcome to the Disney Animated Cannonball, a podcast where we watch all of the Disney animated canon as ordained by the druids. <laughs> and some of them make us more upset than others. Mmm. We're in a rare form today where for once we're not shocked, we're not horrified, we're kind of angry. <laughs> What are we kind of angry at this week? In this episode, I, Talon Lee, he, him, and I, Fox Lee, she, her, are angry about The Fox and the Hound from 1981. Hmm. Boy, my relationship with this movie is loaded. So before we can get into discussing this odd rage fest that I find <laughs> myself in, uh, we're going to need to do the plot in 60 seconds. I feel like I should do this one. It might be a little bit rough on you. If you'd like, I trust you, and I appreciate you willing to take this burden from me. It's a pretty simple one. I think I can manage this. Your time starts now. One morning, a baby fox is orphaned when his mother is shot by a hunter. Some friendly local birds help him find a home with a widow, while at the same time, on the property across the way, her neighbor, the hunter, brings home a new puppy to train to be a hunting dog. The fox and the hound accidentally meet and become bestest buds because they're so delightfully innocent and don't realize that when the dog grows up, he will be trained to kill the fox. Inevitably, this happens. Uh, the hunter has a particular vendetta against the fox, so he pursues him beyond all reason, forcing the widow to take him to a game reserve and try and release him back into the wild. The hunter pursues him anyway in a tremendously illegal fashion, uh, but in the end, is attacked by a bear and only narrowly saved by the fox intervening, causing the dog to stand up for his old friend. And happy ending as they go back to their separate homes, knowing that they stood by each other but never to see each other again. A little bit over, but yeah, that's that's the movie in a minute. Yeah. Okay. <sighs> okay, I'm going to start by saying right up front, this is a rough one for me. Uh, I have a complicated pre-existing relationship with this movie, so let's talk about yours first. I feel like it's going to be a lot more simple. I've never seen this movie. Have you ever had any awareness of it beyond having seen it? Aside from me. No, I've literally never seen anything about this movie. I thought I understood what happened in this movie. I thought I had a general understanding of it, and I... Like, I did, but also a lot of details that were very important were missing from that general understanding. Really, I was just templating onto it all sorts of other movies with this same general structure. <laughs> ah. And, uh, ironically, this movie is kind of like a greatest hits of that particular formula from the 60s and 70s. So. Hmm. It could have, I mean, it could have been in the sense that it was a very, I mean, it's a weird Disney for sure. Like, this is not their normal fare. Oh, and we can go in on that. <laughs> yes, well, I gather we can. Okay. So, my pre-existing relationship with this movie is a book that the listener cannot see that I am holding in my hands, which I have owned for as long as I can remember, uh, which is literally falling apart at the seams. And on a lot of pages, you can see the impressions from how many times I traced over the panels. 
this was hugely formative in my love of foxes and animals in general and bittersweet stories and Disney, really. Yeah. Um, but I never saw the actual movie until a few years ago. <laughs> and uh, it's rough for me because the movie's not as good as the version that's in my head from all these years. Yeah. Straight up. It's, uh, I mean, you know, the book is no fantastic work of art either. It's, uh, you know, this is the story of the film told in cartoon strips on a starburst on the cover. It's very workmanlike. Yeah, I'm I'm used to seeing that kind of comic book work being done in big British annuals, um, where you'd buy <laughs> one a year kind of thing. It do, It's not... You know, we're not talking like 80s comic book, we're talking a step below the typical 80s comic books. Yeah, yeah, like it's it's bigger than a, an issue comic book, but it's very, like, that. most of the panels have no backgrounds, the colour is that, like, we have four screen tone colours to use on this thing. Yeah. This is not a lush and beautiful exercise, but, you know, as as you like to tell people, the, the bits of the story that you filled in between what was actually there can be better than the actual story, and boy is it. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm gonna say a lot of very hurtful things about this movie, but it's not because the story it wants to tell is a bad one. I am enraged at the <laughs> obvious good story they had, and the absolute failure of execution um and you deserve a better story because i can see the story that you can remember here and that you love and there is a there is a deep sad story here to love it's just it was in this case put on to sell by a fool <laughs> well i mean the animation's lovely for the most part yep there's a couple of unfortunate uh quirks of it which we'll talk about when we get onto the animation Wait, is that now? <laughs> well, you did see this movie only a couple of years ago for the first time. Anything for the double take? Um, sort of yes, but also if I start on it, I may never finish. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, a lot of the lines used in the comic book are the exact same ones in the film. Mm. So in my head, they had their own cadence before I ever heard them spoken. So yeah. they're all wrong to me. Yep. This is not how it sounded. Uh -huh. Except this is obviously how it's always sounded. The songs had tunes before, <sighs> and these are not those tunes. It's the strangest thing. Yeah. Oh, boy. Because they are presented as songs in the book. Like, the characters, uh, Big Mama is, is shown singing, and they give, like, an abridged version of the song lyrics. That's pretty wild. But, like, enough that my brain wanted to put a melody to it because it was a song, and, you know, that's... It's what you do. Anyway, oh, it's it's an odd experience. Um, I guess my one big double take is is I don't like Mickey Rooney. Um, he he is the adult voice of Todd. Yeah. The the uh lovely boy fox who who obviously I adored. Um, along with Robin Hood was very formative in my love of foxes. Um uh and hearing him have the voice of Mickey Rooney the first time I saw this film was slightly heartbreaking. Um in my case, just as a point of curiosity, I'm deleting this from my whatever land, but um, I have it listed as Mickey Rooney's voice is infinitely punchable. It is! He's just such a... I don't know, he's got this kind of all-American smart-ass sound to his voice that just wants a punch in the nose somehow. Yep. <sighs> don't like it. Trying not to get bogged down in the production of stuff yet, but yeah. <laughs> no, no, I mean, there's, there's other voices we'll talk about too, but... Mm. Uh, 
Well, normally we talk about the animation of it first, don't we? Yeah, but before we do that, we open the Yikes door. Oh, yes. I don't have any Yikes notes. I have some minor Yikes notes, but they kind of just fold into the central thesis. Well, I'll go with the one big one that I am aware of then. Uh, Because it's not my Yikes, and it's a Yikes I don't feel qualified talking about whatsoever. Because I would never have noticed it. Uh, But I have heard critiques of this film mentioning that Big Mama is kind of a racist caricature. Because she is sort of a mammy character. Mm. And sort of a magical negro character. I don't think it's necessarily overplayed, but she definitely exists as a caretaker for a white protagonist. So I can see where it's coming from. Yeah, that that one is one... I would not have filed that myself. That did not ping on my radar. Um, so she was not painful enough that I noticed. Yeah. Not that I'm, <laughs> no, not that I'm specially endowed with knowledge of this. Maybe it's because when this kind of thing pops up in cartoons, you expect it to be just ridiculously overdone. So occupying this role isn't enough to, to trip the radar, as it were. Because she's not, you know, to the best of my understanding, she isn't a a caricature using any of the usual gross things that are used to make fun of black women. Yeah. Uh, I mean, she's round, but she's also an owl. Now, what I would point to on that front is that this is a major role for a black woman in a Disney movie, but they wouldn't have a black protagonist for another 30 years. No, no, it's true. Did you catch who the voice is, by the way? Uh, it's a lady named Pearl. This is Pearl Bailey. You, you're not familiar with that name. The name did not leap out at okay. me. Okay, she is a singer. Uh, and she's probably why most of the songs in this are performed by Big Mama. Mm-hmm. Because if she was going to be in your dang Disney movie, she was going to sing. Uh, but yeah, she she's pretty famous in her own right. Nice. I did admit, I looked at her Wikipedia page while I was doing my research, and it was just like, Yep, she looks like a famous person who I shouldn't bother mentioning to Fox because <laughs> she was famous in the 60s and 70s. <laughs> oh, you normally do so much research. I normally do. <laughs> like, I don't know if she's quite in the same breath as, like, Ella Fitzgerald, but I, mm. I, that's the kind of caliber we're talking about, I think. Mm-hmm. The stuff I have for the Ike store is mostly tied into toxic masculinity. Yeah, that's a lens that I never uh, had the capacity to examine this story through before uh, recent events. <laughs> yep. Uh, and I would largely put that in with my stuff on the grand thesis. Okay. Well, but- That's good. We can, It's definitely the, the bulk of the serious mm-hmm. discussion to be had about this movie. What I will also note is this hunter demonstrates terrible gun safety. Oh, he's awful in every way. And the my main problem with the film that doesn't involve Mickey Rooney's voice is this fucking character's ending. Yeah, um... But it is just super yikes to show in a kid's film a guy casually waving a gun and shooting it at people. Yeah, I mean, he he straight shoots at the widow's car when he's following her and she's in there driving it and there's no way a bunch of milk cans and the back of an an open carriage. Yeah. Uh, a vintage motor car. What do you even call this kind of car? These are so old, I don't know how to talk about them. A jalopy. That's a jalopy? Okay, now I know what a jalopy is. Yep. I just thought that was some kind of New York insult. <laughs> and that's all I got for the Yikes store that isn't going to come up later. Right. It, it is a film with not a whole lot of, of, of its time baggage. Don't get me wrong, there's a whole bunch of stuff with Vixie that's all bound up and, you know, inherent roles and your natural place. And you could definitely womp it into pointing out the fact that everyone winds up in racially segregated communities. But also, it's just not worth it. I I have bigger fish to smash with a hammer. (laughs) 
Well, that also just goes back to the, if you make your animals humans, then you can't have them be animals anymore. That's a secret point we'll get to later. <laughs> All right. Well, shall we then? Eyelash oh. watch. Oh, it's eyelash watch. I, but I wasn't prepared. My note card was right at the end of my animation section. Uh, it's Boomer. It's the woodpecker who briefly wears grown-up Todd's tail as a scarf and bats his suddenly apparent eyelashes. So, uh, we're, we're clearly in the era of boys pretending to be femme for a joke can have eyelashes. <laughs> Which I think lasts for the rest of Disney. That was Eyelash Watch. Next up, we have the animation and making section. Yo, yo, I got a lot for this. Alright, so tell me, as an animation fan, as an animation nerd, is there any overall take you have on this whole movie as animation? Well, look, the big thing to note here is that we are out of the sketchy era. Yeah. I don't know if we're out of xerography, but this film looks like old Disney again in the sense that the, the scribbly lines, the Milk Carl did this and you can't expect a human being to ink it in a reasonable time frame. Uh, this is over. Mm-hmm. We, we have very, I mean, standard setting animation, I guess. Yeah. Um, it, it looks fucking lovely for the most part. There's a lot of stuff which uh, does something which I learned from you was a Disney thing, which is coloured lines. Oh, did we get some of those in this movie? Yeah, the the Widow Tweed's purple uh, shawl has a purple outline and her hair has a silver one. And it, it was just something that, that leapt out at me because, of course, the xerography technique that let them do coloured yeah, lines yeah. had just been developed a movie Interesting. before. Interesting. So would you say this movie? So you say this movie's overall animation is lovely, all right? Uh, I would, yes. Uh, I did have a couple of specific notes where I feel like it's let down. All right. Um, this movie, a disproportionate amount of this movie's runtime is animals running from other animals, mm. and they're not that great at it. I think they just wanted to keep them in frame for as long as possible, or let you know watchers process the motion more effectively because the dogs and foxes in this run so slowly there are points where they look like they're not even really connecting to the ground because they they step so strangely in an effort to fit more steps in yep and and somehow increase the distance they have to run it's not great uh and it starts right from the start with the the unnamed mother fox being pursued and just sort of almost floating across the uh the grassy hills, when, I don't know if you've ever seen a fox bolt, but they go like stink! They are fast. Yeah, that's kind of how they survive. Yeah. It, um, we, we happen to have a dog that would chase a fox, and there was one <laughs> memorable night where we think we saw one, and we're not sure we did, but it was gone so fast. Yep, it was gone so fast that it took a sight hound to see it. If you're not familiar with those dogs, there's a clue in the name as to what they're good at. <laughs> So, did you by chance in the credits notice the animation card? Um, I noticed a few things. I know we talked about last episode, Milk Carl is not uh, mm-hmm. a lead animator anymore. Yep. And is he in this at all? He's nope. left, has he not? Milk Carl has retired. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if he maybe still did some work on- No, actually, he would never- <laughs> He would make a stink <laughs> if he were uncredited, never mind that. But there is, uh, there is some stuff about uncredited artists. I know Glenn Keane is on this one. Mm-hmm. Uh, his name sticks with me. And there is an artist who I think might be uncredited, actually. Uh, a, a woman who specifically uh, worked on the bear. Yeah. Um, 
So, to give you the story that I'm circling around here, you might have noticed that the animators card, like the list of animators, was actually a little smaller than you might be used yeah, to. Yeah, I expected this movie to look cheaper uh, relative to the amount of staff credited. This movie was an animator bloodbath. Uh, right. There were arguments in the studio about the director, Reitherman's direction, and how he was choosing to handle things like training up new talent. So, 16 of the animators quit. Fuck me. And asked to have their names removed from the credits. Oh, okay. So, uh, fucking Milk Carl might have been on there. No, no, Milk Carl was not here. Okay. Milk, Milk Carl had retired, and I think given the state of this political argument and the amount of nonsense around- Well, I, I say nonsense. People were angry. People were angry and feeling disrespected, and one of the big tensions here was that you had kind of this middle bubble. Because you had Ollie Johnson still working on this movie. I was like, okay, so he's the oldest dude. And Ratherman, he's the voice director from way back in Sword of the Stone. So he's been here for Ratherman's 20 years. Ratherman's been the director on most of this era. Yeah. Uh, I have spotted his name come up repeatedly. At first we were like, who's this bozo? Is this why Sword of the Stone is so bad? But, uh, I mean, you know, yes. since then he's also directed most of the ones that we really liked. So yeah. he, he's been here for the good and the bad. So you have Ratherman and Ollie Johnson as like these old guard figures. Milt Carl is gone. The, uh, and only Johnson, by the way, he's the last of the, uh, of the nine old men to remain. Yeah, I remember this very strictly. Um, and then you have this kind of middle bubble of people in their 40s and 50s who are like, all right, cool, but when are we going to get to take charge? And that includes Don Bluth. The people you would, you know, naturally be promoting to your lead animators. Yeah. When old men retire. And then under them, you have a whole bunch of people who started doing inking work and sketching work and concept art who are like, you know, getting trained up to do the rest of the work of this movie. And it was that middle bubble who just snapped midway through the production of this movie. Hmm. So there is a bunch of stuff which had, for example, Don Bluth animated the uh, cow bucket barn sequence, which is a lovely sequence. It's very well done. Yeah, now that you mention it, I can think of some other Don Bluth cows. That, mm -hmm. Yeah, all right, yeah. See yep. It's very distinctly them. Uh, but you might also notice this movie was 61 minutes. I, in fact, did not notice this until you pointed it out before we started watching. Holy hell, this is short. Isn't that too short for a cinematic release in the US? Now. Eh, maybe not in the 80s. Yeah. Uh, and you also notice how much this movie could be described as fucking around. Well, yeah, that's what I was going to say. I'm glad it's not longer because, like, it, it had some filler as it was. It's not objectionable filler. It's mostly just, like, cute puppy, cute baby fox, do cute thing. Or, I'm, I'm down with that. Or birds hunt worm. Or a pointless song, which is... Hmm. Yeah. Well, okay, most of the songs aren't pointless. Most of the songs have a direct purpose, but that doesn't mean I like them. The movie has an extraordinary amount of scenes that were added later to fix both the removal of some key scenes and also um, to deal with some scenes that were like, well, we can't, we, we have a third of the sketches that, that someone like Don Bluth was right. doing. We can't just womp that into a new thing without these sketches looking really weird in the middle of it. So we have to redo it. Does explain a few very weird cuts. Yes. Like there's, some of them make sense, but some of them have that distinct air that I got from, uh, let me see. Since we're talking about Don Bluth, fast forward a bit. Uh, I don't know if you caught the Australian release of Anastasia. Mm, no, I didn't. But, you know, uh, okay. you showed me Anastasia. 
at one point. Right, do you remember the dream sequence on the yes, boat? Yes, that really weird cut in there. Like, wait, did, did you miss something? Yeah, where the dream turns into a nightmare, and, and on the version we got on VHS, it just cuts to her waking up, because they didn't want to show the part where the dream devolves into Satan trying to convince her to jump into hell. Yeah. And some of the cuts in this movie have that feeling to them. Mm-hmm. Like, they feel so unnatural, you were like, that that felt like a shitty TV edit. Um, the movie has about three times as much sketch work as normal. Now, that's a lot of it is because it had to get redone and remade, <laughs> and a lot of it is being done by new people who are being trained up that I am told, with all of their names being big blue Wikipedia links, <laughs> is important later. Man, they, um... Ironically, if if they had gone sketchy style for this, they probably could have salvaged a lot of that. This movie had to be released six months late. This was going to be a Christmas film, and they dropped it in the middle of the year in 1981. And this movie has already had already taken three years to get made compared to The Rescuers. Doesn't that make it what the Yanks like to call a summer blockbuster? Kind of at the point where summer blockbusters weren't a thing yet. Oh, okay. I was going to say, they're always talking about Christmas being like the bad time to release a movie, which has never made any fucking sense <laughs> yeah. to me. Yeah, it's Christmas. Everyone wants to be in the air conditioning. Yeah, let's go watch a movie. That's two hours we don't have to spend in like the real life heat out there. Yeah. Um. Now... I have some other points on the animation, which is mostly about changed or deleted scenes, if you have the stamina. No, I'd love to know. Uh, Okay, so, this is just a quote directly. In an earlier version of the film, Chief was slated to die as he did in the novel. Oh, okay, I knew that. Animator Ron Clements, who had briefly transitioned into the story department, because, by the way, everyone moved into every department. This thing was a fracas. (laughs) Protested that Chief has to die. The picture doesn't work if he just breaks his leg. Copper doesn't have motivation to hate the fox. And yeah, he's right. Yeah. This is a big problem here. It's it's kind of a weak motivation. In the, the version I read, we don't know that Chief is alive at that point, so it's perfectly reasonable to go, oh, okay, he thinks he's dead. Right, yeah, yeah. I, I get it. Uh, the younger animators were like, yeah, we should... The, the, the dog has to die, right? The story doesn't make sense unless the dog dies. And the response from Stevens... One of the directors was, geez, we never killed a main character in a Disney film and we're not starting now. Is that a make? Uh, whatever. And this led to, uh, this led to argument blocks, like people forming coalitions to argue with senior management <laughs> about this stuff. Um, Ollie Johnston did a test animation of, um, Chief stomping around in a cast that just got used in the film wholesale. But part of that was also... Him going, well, if I've done some animation, we're so desperate for animation that you can't waste any of it. Oh, I've got all this animation of Chief after the fall. Oh, I guess. (laughs) Oh, look at all these frames. What am I going to do with them? Whoopsie doodle. Um, Which then led to a return to the sequence where Chief is in the water, where Chief is like super limp and they alter the animation to include him opening his eyes. So if that looks out of place and weird, that's why. They also do it twice. Like, after he falls, they yeah. have him raise his head a bit and open his eyes, and then afterwards, when, when Copper nuzzles him, he does the totally dead flop. Yep. And a couple of seconds later, they have him open his eyes. <laughs> so that's, that's the, uh, that's like the kind of macabre, behind-the-scenes kind of tension. I get it. You like Pat Bertram. You don't want him to die. You might get a swaggle out of him. Yeah. Well, you know who else they like? They like that Phil Harris guy. And Wait, they... Phil Harris is in this? No. Oh, I didn't think so. But you might notice this movie doesn't have a strong second act. Um, yeah... Eh, no, that's fair. The second act is kind of one scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, Reitherman thought so, too. So he had a plan. He decided to add a musical sequence. 
of two swooping cranes voiced by Phil Harris, who you know, and Charo, who we will have to go to the Wikipedia page to learn more about. Okay. Uh, Apparently very, very famous Latin American uh, performer who is mostly known in America for sexy Latin singer. Okay. um, Who would sing a song titled... Scooby Dooby Dooby Doo, let your body turn to goo. Ugh. To Todd in the rain. They had this sequence recorded. They had live action animation of Charo in a sweaty pink leotard doing the the choreography. Uh, and everyone fucking hated it. Yeah, no, that sounds terrible. It was one of the things that they demanded to cut from the movie in all of the arguments. So that's why Phil Harris isn't in this movie. Uh, I mean, I, I like Phil Harris's work previously, but when he was scatting is my least favorite Phil Harris. Uh-huh. Huh. Well, that's that's interesting. I'm, I don't feel like the second act would have been strengthened by having two bit part characters pop in for another song we didn't need. They're already on thin fucking ice for doing Appreciate the Lady, I gotta say. Yeah. Oh, and speaking of ice, we go back to the Bambi well of Animals <laughs> on Ice are Funny. <laughs> Ah, oh, come on, that's for like three seconds. Yeah, it's fine. It's just there's someone there's someone working in Disney who is just all like, yeah, man, you wanna you wanna get a laugh, you want a crowd pleasing movie, put an animal on ice. <laughs> I mean they do play with, with Copper's physicality a bit. Like they yeah. like him to still be gangly and uh, not fully in control of his extremities. In the animation of Copper laughing when he's young. And his ear falls over his eye. Yeah. Like, that's charming as hell. The baby animation is just super cute overall. It's adorable. I also like that they keep Copper ugly as a kid. <laughs> well, I wouldn't phrase it that way, but, like, it's an ugly, cute kind of dog, so... Yeah. They, they look slightly melted. Yeah. But, I mean, that's... <sighs> look, I find pugs ugly, but people think pugs are the cutest fucking things ever. So, like, same kind of deal, right? Okay. You can't really say it, it's, you know, they kept him ugly because they were definitely trying to make him cute. Yeah, fair enough then. All right then. In which case, I think we'll get to the point where we have to start pulling off a band-aid. This is the film where they worked out snow. Yeah! <laughs> like this, after seeing some very, very rough snow in the last few movies. Um, yeah, just snow is, is back and it's lumpy and not like weirdly light or or... Scribbly. Uh, fibrous or scribbly. Yeah, it just looks like snow again. I feel like that means snow must be like a a painted special effects kind of thing that they just did not have the money for in the roughest of days. Makes sense. Yeah. Because I, I feel like when we saw it in Bambi, it, it was not a problem. No, it was fine. And that was a million to years ago at this point. It's like the third one. It's like 40 years ago. Yeah. So uh, I feel like we've got to chalk that one up to budget. Uh... I also, and this is, this varies in different parts of the film, but depending on which sequence you catch Todd in, they have him fold the tops of his ears to show disappointment, or occasionally flop his ears down forward uh, to show disappointment, and that's just, why? In later sequences, they have him turning his ears back, like a fox does, to, to show that he's scared or sad or whatever, and it looks right, but like, you can't, I mean, you can just fold the top of the ears and go, that's how he looks sad. But it doesn't look sad, because he emotes mostly like a fox for the rest of for, for the rest of what he does. Yep. And just have him do a weird non-fox thing that, that, that there's no muscular control there. Ah! I'm torn between not wanting to complain about something being 
unrealistic and wanting to pl- complain about something being stupid. I'm sure you can understand yeah. my dilemma. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to call out Dinky in particular <laughs> in animation terms. He looks fantastic. He moves so much like a sparrow. It's delightful to yep. watch him just bouncing all over the place. Did, did you catch the moment on the branch when Boomer falls through it, where Dinky's head stays still and his whole body yes! repositions underneath it? Yes! Mwah! Love it. The timing on that was perfect. That was, in a film that has some serious issues with direction, that was a beautiful moment. Mm-hmm. Know who else is really well animated, who's fairly minor as a character, to the point where he doesn't get a fucking name? The Badger. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. That was that was a good badger. Yeah. That badger is half of Todd's size, and the badger will have him. <laughs> that was interesting, too, because I, I popped up at one point to be like, isn't he kind of small? Are American badgers just smaller than Eurasian badgers? And Talon looked it up. Turns out, yes. Yeah. Sorry, sorry America, you have small badgers. Ah, they'll still clearly fuck you up. Oh, yeah. I, I enjoy a good ornery badger. Um... Alright, and aside of that, there was just a, a little bug where probably relates to the aforementioned difficulties with the railroad scene. Because uh, there's multiple points where Todd's collar disappears and reappears yeah. during that sequence. <laughs> it's there, it's gone, it's there, it's gone. I try not to rag on animation errors, but it happens a few too many times to just let it slide. Yeah, and I mean, it, it betrays one of the things about this movie in the quality of the animation is still top-notch. But there's a lot of stuff which goes into, like I've said, the making of this movie. Yeah. Things like continuity and editing that would be ideally caught if this development wasn't so troubled that 16 animators quit. That's so many. We've watched movies where they had fewer animators than that on the credits as a whole. Yeah. Like, earlier Disney's, you didn't have 16 animators worth naming. Sorry, when I say worth naming, that's not fair. In between is a fucking heroes. Yeah. Bambi well, didn't have 16 named animators. Knowing that it went through that kind of a rough period makes a lot of sense. And and we really are on the cusp. And this this right now, like we've been talking about dividing this thing up into seasons. And the xerography era, like it's almost like actually that xerography era with the departure of Milk Carl. Not that Milk Carl made it good, but like there is definitely a distinct point from here and the slide down onward into the Disney Renaissance where stuff is just weird. Milk? Carl is like I'm not doing great man history of animation style of thing, but I think he Im- he clearly imparted a lot of personality onto the films that he was a lead for. Yeah, uh, you can immediately sense his absence from this one if you watch them in order up until this point. And and if we do go with the idea that Disney, because of its because it's very hierarchical Walt Disney style thing. If you want to draw that line of continuity and go, well, Walt Walt was in charge, you had this one clear vision, and it sucked, but it was a clear vision. (laughs) Then that was then wrested away in the animation department by this fight between uh, Milt Carl and Ratherman, which Milt Carl seemingly won a lot. And then you have Milt Carl is gone, and all the people who they basically spent their time bullying (laughs) don't know how to work together. It's and and this is the reason why you resist things like Great Man History because we don't know what this film would have looked like if there hadn't been louder people asserting their personalities the whole way along. Like they probably did do really badly by this next generation of animators. Yeah, there's a reason Don Bluth told Disney to fuck off, and then 
it, spoiler, in the next few years, he will almost kill them at the box office. Which is an amazing feat. Right? At this point, it's slaying a dragon. Yeah. And uh, it's, uh, you. whenever you think about, oh, this person had such a tremendous influence on their field, you also have to think in terms of, yeah, but if they were an asshole, who did they stop yeah. from having a tremendous influence and what would that have looked like? And consider if this whole lineage of great men of these difficult, problematic, grapplable men. We're all in this line, and this is the moment at the end where things fell apart. Imagine how great this movie could have been if everyone involved liked one another. <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, it's a sad movie. It's a melancholy movie. Yeah. That is its purpose. But coming off an era when the main thing Disney movies have been doing is having fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, this does feel kind of joyless. Like, for a movie that's so much about emotion and, and heart and friendship, it does land a little wrong for some reason. And I, I, I feel like stretching your, uh, content, stretching your product as thin as possible to become a skin over your internal uh, conflict is... That could very much be responsible for that feeling. Yeah. And I think at this point, we kind of have the grand thesis, like, staring at us like a train on a track. <laughs> so, when we talk about the grand thesis of this movie, and our central conjecture about it, and the thing that left me so rageful, and possibly Fox so mournful? Is that fair to say? Uh, possibly. Do you remember how I... I described the moral of this to you after we cut our recording from the last episode. Do tell. Uh, I'll have you assess it uh, if you think it was a good description, but I I said the, the moral of the fox and the hound is what if loving something wasn't enough to fix it? That's such a fantastic coda for the movie this movie wants to be. <laughs> that, that is beautiful and sad and tragic and meaningful and i think the movie that that would make is purer and better than this poisoned version we got Ooh, strong feelings from talon so one of the elements that goes into talking about this movie is the idea of anthropocentrism and anthropomorphication i think i might have dropped a syllable in there but you know what i mean <laughs> no that that was the right word anthropomorphication. Yeah. the idea of turning non-human things into human things for the context of a story. There is a lot of stuff in this movie that wants to say this is just animal stuff, but the lens it always uses to do that is human. And that means that there is always going to be fundamental problems with how these characters want to treat one another and treat the quote-unquote society they live in and how they relate to one another in a broader sense because they aren't animals. They are humans that look like animals. Now, the reason I wrote this down originally, because I was going to make the point of, like, it's not fair for me to say foxes don't do that, or dogs don't do that, <laughs> or that's unrealistic behavior for these animals, because that's not what this is about. Yeah, at all. no, it's not supposed to be realistic behavior. And this is a counterpoint to Bambi, because a lot of Bambi did stuff that was meant to say, like, no, this is how animals behave when we're not involved. <laughs> it did, but then they put this weird, creepy human layer on it that yeah. kind of made it worse. Yeah, and I think that that's in part because that's how Walt Disney did see uh, nature and reality. He would interpret it through a white male reality lens, yes. Yeah, so in this movie, you have... The question of these two children who become friends 
and then their societies pull them apart and the question of how how can they maintain what they had and what does that even mean when you are no longer together and that's an interesting sad story this story also doesn't want to touch on predation which is a big <laughs> problem when you talk about humanizing animals it does very much well okay aside from the birds trying to catch the caterpillar yeah which is comic relief and uh he's the caterpillar is both a non-character and uh you know above their shenanigans kind of thing so and also it doesn't talk yeah well that's why it's not really a character it's like it it emotes and it's got intelligence, but it's not assigned the same amount of humanity as the real character. Yeah. I say it. it squeaks. Squeaks. Squeaks is a he. Squeaks has a name. At least according to all the birds who yell at him. Yeah. Squeaks might not know that's his name. <laughs> that's a weird one, yeah. I wonder if they just called him that. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, like, and similarly, like, you know, the anthropocentric viewpoint of this whole thing means that we can't just go, well, look, caterpillars don't live for three, don't live for a full year. That's ridiculous. <laughs> Like, that doesn't matter! That's not how this works! Compared to some of the other uh, liberties we see with Disney animals, uh, I think we can get along with Caterpillar Liz for the better part of a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we've stretched that much further in the past, so I think we're okay with this version. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like, aside from the bird's relationship with Squeaks, and of course the fish, because fish are never humans yeah. in animal movies never it's the weirdest fucking thing yeah they're, they're uh, we we clearly have a hierarchical view of nature that views fish as lesser <laughs> which is interesting because in this the caterpillar was more human than the fish which is pretty rare like mm -hmm. normally bugs are on the level of fish hakuna matata <laughs> it'll come up again that's but, a secret weapon that'll help us later is that how we do yeah <laughs> and by the way on that note consider that that movie has a point of referencing predation and being willing to accept that yeah in this setting predation happens we're not going to ignore it i mean they say that but they also completely pull the punch on ever uh letting a main character uh eat some other sentient animal yeah they still get closer than this movie they do they do in this movie humans are the only ones who kill other animals basically and this creates this creates some tension. If you view the behaviors of Todd and Copper and Chief in human terms, which the movie keeps inviting you to do, then this is a choice of how humans behave in a effectively family relationships and neighborly relationships. And in that situation, it's very hard to see this as tragic as like, you know, the inevitable movement of two inexorable things that no one is to blame and no one is at fault and it just happens. And instead, this is the result of an abusive father harming his sons and everyone his sons come in contact with. Yeah, pretty much. The example moment I wanted to point to is after Chief gets hurt, there's a moment where Amos, the um, Amos, the hunter, whose name incidentally means trouble because there is nothing subtle, walks out into the yard past Copper's barrel. And Copper, who knows he is not being addressed, who knows that nothing is happening here to him, retreats into his barrel afraid. Now, if you're a dog and you observe your humans angry and moving around and you retract, that's usually a sign of a dog that has been taught to fear. But Copper isn't a dog. Copper is a child. Copper is this guy's kid. And if your kid cowers when you walk past, you have fucked up. 
I mean, if your dog cowers when you walk past, you have fucked up. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> yeah, like, there's a... Okay, a dog can sense that you're upset about something and uh, take on, like, an anxious mood because of that, but I don't think that's what we saw. It sure looked like fear to me. And yeah. If you being upset makes your dog angry, that's probably because you've done the wrong thing to them in the past. Yeah, and that's when you then see Chief is manipulative, Chief acts for sympathy, and is and is rebuffed for that, and threatened for that. Uh, when Copper first oh, yeah, gets Amos called- Oh yeah, a piece of shit. Yeah, when, when Copper first gets called to come back, why does he say he has to go? I was sitting here waiting for him, like, well, I have to go. He's my master. I was expecting some dog-like statement. Oh, you got it. He sounds real mad. Yeah, it's fear. Amos rules his dogs through fear. Amos exerts himself on the world around him through violence, in many cases completely unreasonable violence, and he makes his dogs violent to others. I mean, that's that's a very real dog story, unfortunately. Yeah. Like, that... That's how you get violent dogs, yeah. It's, I mean, they don't do that shit naturally. They've grown for fucking, <laughs> they've grown since realistically before humans existed mm -hmm. to try and make humans happy with them. They don't go violent for no reason. And then you throw in the idea that these two forces not only are, not only is Amos bad, but also the power is completely opposite. This is not an equal thing. Amos has power. Amos is exerting it on the world around him. Amos is training to hunt and kill. You can make the case of like, hey, he needs to do that. He's a hunter. He's a trapper. It's how he lives. It's the only way he feeds himself. And you would have a case there, except he is shown pursuing Todd entirely out of cruelty. I thought you were going to say he's shown pursuing Todd for going after his chickens, indicating that he has some other form of livelihood and could feed himself just fine. There is that. I don't remember the chickens. Like, I don't remember seeing the chickens. I remember the barrel full of chickens. The very oh, yeah. first time Todd uh, gets chased by Chief. Yeah, you're right. He flees into the chicken coop. That's right. Yes, he has chickens. And So that's sort of the grounds for, for Amos losing his shit the first time. But this is not by way of an excuse. It's like his reaction is horrifically disproportionate. Yeah. He takes shots that could easily have killed a human. Yep. Then you continue to watch this spiral out. He goes on a game preserve. He traps on a game preserve. Are you yeah. kidding me? No, I mean, he's supposed to be a, a bad guy. It's I, I don't think any of this stuff is supposed to be portrayed in a reasonable light, which is why the ending is so fucking fucked up. Yeah. Like, I have no problem with any of this up until the point that we go, well, because he got the message in the end... Yeah. He should be forgiven for all this. He starts a fire in a national park. Yeah. None of the people he harmed can ever have justice. And the movie does not fundamentally think he needs to. The movie thinks he needs to stop hunting Todd. Yes. That's it. One specific fox. It's entirely personal, yeah. And, and the length that fox had to go to to earn that are fucking heroic. Because it isn't just that he saved him from a bear. The fox then had to be defended by his own dog. Yes. Like, fucking hell. So, and, and this is the thing that makes this movie hard for me to accept. Because at this point, no, this guy just getting murked by the bear is the end. This is the good bit of the movie where this guy just dies because there is no coming back from this. You did have your perfect chance for a Disney death at that point too. Like, he, you know, the bear chases him up the falls and they both go over. And, yeah. You know, the, the ultimately the worst force of nature... Ultimately, the superior hunter wins. Yeah, and Widow Tweed 
takes care of Chief and Todd and Copper, and you have someone who is shown to be sympathetic and caring and loving, who is no longer being threatened by her neighbor. With a gun. With a gun, is put in a position to restore a sense of things. Yeah, and instead they not only have her take care of him, they imply that they might be taking a shine to each other. Yeah. Which is gross. Fucking odious. I don't know why she tolerates his presence for a second. How do you how do you talk about that relationship? Like, well, you know, he did threaten to kill my pet four or five times. And, uh, you know, he, he did take shots at me in a moving vehicle one time. But, uh, you know, what really got to me is just the constant disrespect that he showed me. I loved how he called me female. Yeah. Uh, just, it it really shits up her character. Because she's pretty great otherwise. She's like, lovely. She's... She's a bit dense about, you know, oh, no, my fox would never chase your chickens. Yes. Yes, he would. Your fox probably would. We know he didn't. We know he didn't. It's a totally reasonable thing to go, well, my pet fox is not safe around people's chickens. Yeah, no, that's a, that would be a legitimate concern. And, you know, if he brought that to her without trying to shoot her pet and her, um, you know, maybe things would have turned out differently. But the point is, she knows that he's human as well. So, yeah, she knows that he wouldn't have done it. Yeah. But... Like, otherwise, she's a surprisingly strong character in this. She doesn't take his shit. She's violent toward him, but only in retribution for what he does to her, and it's mightily deserved. Um, and, and, you know, how can you not sympathize with her throughout this? She's kind of the only person who doesn't do anything to make me hate her. And she has, and this is where the grand thesis comes in, she has the most genuine, sincere, terrible moment of the movie. Yeah. That I mean, the agony <laughs> of having to give up something you love so intensely for its own good, and it can never understand you. That still gets me now, because, you know, we we rent. I've had the, 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 you know, invasive thought of, like, what happens if we lose this security somehow and we have a dog? Uh, and it's terrifying. Yeah. So, yeah, that scene makes me cry every time. And, and that is the peak of this movie, that... It sucks, too, because I don't want the best thing about this movie to be something so heart-wrenching. It's not like I don't mind heart- like, it's not like, you know, it's bad for heart-wrenching things. It's just there is so much other stuff in this movie that deserves to look at that moment and say, no, this is- this is what we're about. We're about this very real, very understandable barrier of communication. We are about this impossibility and these unbearable pains we take in the name of love. What if loving something- was not enough to fix it. Oh, damn, he got me. Do you need a moment? He got me with my own bit! Yeah, it also... It's a really badly done scene. Which yeah. is tremendously frustrating. With a narrator kicking in! You're... Well, it's her voice. I know, but so, we've never seen this before in this moment. It's still... Yeah, it's... This was in my voices notes, actually, but we may as well talk about it now, because this movie has a bit of a Phil Collins problem going on. Yeah. Like, they did not have the balls to just have characters sing their feelings to one another, because we're... Despite the idea of the classic Disney film being a musical, they're mostly songs... They're mostly movies with music in them, and not actual musicals. That won't start until the Renaissance. Mm. But, like, this is such a bad substitute that we build up to an emotional moment and then we have another character sing about how we should feel. Yeah. And it's, it's not good. It, it is painful because in the moment you have this really sad thing happening. And, um, like, we, 
I'll be, I'll level with you. Fox and I watching this, I could tell Fox was upset. I could tell Fox was probably crying. Oh, I was crying. Yeah. And I'm sitting there enraged that they're playing <laughs> over it. This terrible, like you could have done that whole sequence completely wordlessly and it would still hit as hard, if not harder. Yeah, I think it, ooh, that's that's intriguing now. I kind of want to do this without the lyrics of any of the songs. Now, well, okay, maybe you could keep uh, Lack of Education, which is, I think it's no coincidence, the one song that is diegetically performed in the movie. Yeah. Like, it is the birds explaining to Todd why his friend will try and kill him one day. Uh, but the rest of them are, as you say, effectively voiceover, and I don't think they add no. anything. I don't want to diss on Pearl Bailey. She's a great performer. Yeah. I I just don't think these songs are good songs, especially in this movie. And in the case of... In, it is an interesting filmmaking note that the thing this reminds me of most potently is the unnecessary voiceover from Lois Lane in the 1976 <laughs> Richard Donner Superman movie, which just critically panned. I believe there are versions of the movie you can watch now which just cut the voiceover. Oh, yes, the flying scene. Yeah, yeah can that's you read exactly my mind? exactly what I was thinking of. Yeah. yeah, the sudden appearance of the thoughts of a character that then disappear. Yeah, and it's powerfully unnecessary. And there are times when they show that restraint, like uh, the final scene where uh, Copper puts himself between the gun and Todd. Yeah, uh, wordless! In my precious book version, has... Uh, some dialogue in it. It has Amos explicitly saying, yeah, you're right, this fox saved both our lives. And like, the fact that they didn't put that in is a huge relief because that would have been a stupid line to have someone explicate at that point. Yeah. So like, they they showed that they do have that level of restraint. They trusted us to understand everything that, that transferred between these three characters in that moment. And we did! Because they're good at animating this shit. And we're good at understanding what dogs tell us without words. Also true. Yeah, so <sighs> having them feel the need to to over-explain those scenes. I really want to see that version of that scene now. Just no lyrics, just sad back and forth. You understand everything you need to understand about that scene. Yeah. They convey so well that Todd doesn't get it. Yeah, it's, it's brutal. Yeah. And imagining it without me being flash hot rage through the whole thing. Yeah. So, yeah, that's my grand thesis about this movie. This movie knows that it wants to be about feeling. It knows it wants to be about love. But this movie can't bring itself to hate something. Mm, I like your version. I I think this is one of the big enduring things that separates me from a lot of my friends in the in the normal times. I do think that there are bad things that deserve violence. I definitely think that there are bad things that don't deserve forgiveness. Yeah. At least if they don't even ask for it. Never forgive someone who doesn't ask for it. I'll agree with that. All right, then. Well, now we've solved the world's problems there. Do you want a deep <laughs> breath? Glass of water? I feel like this is the best place to drop a note which might otherwise be whatever land, just so we can leave it in this pile with the heavy stuff when we move on. Because this is based on a novel. I don't know if you... Yes. Oh, yes, you did, because you spoke about Chief Dying originally. Um, I acquired this novel from my local library. Oh, no! When I was a teenager. And I tried to read this book, but it is dense as fuck. And I have the distinct impression that just everyone fucking dies in the end of the book. Yeah, it is a tragic book. <clears throat> Yeah, it's just about how, like, no, you can't be friends forever, and for being foolish enough to think so, you will, you'll get, you'll, you'll, 
The thing that would happen would happen. You you remember that like almost a joke now that if there's a children's book that's award winning and it's got a dog on the cover, <laughs> the, dog the dog dies. Uh, yeah, the fox and the hound won an award. Was it a children's book? Jesus, it did yeah. not read like a children's 1967 book. 1967 children's book. Anyway, basically I just want to say every time someone makes fun of, of the Disney version of Hunchback, oh. they should be thinking about this first. Fuck. Anyway. Oh, yeah, no, that's enough of that. Let us now spread our wings and fly onward, fly like the eagles to whatever land. Oh, yes, lighten up. Mm, shake out those old feathers. Shake out those old leaves. Yep, just some just some good old-fashioned fa- therapeutic bitching. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to start with my voice-based notes. First of all, as soon as I saw that porcupine come on screen, my brain went, that's where I know fucking Piglet's voice from. Yeah, John Feidler. That's the other character. <laughs> Vindication. <laughs> Uh, I would like to forward as part of my uh, truth movement for this movie. Let mama say ass. <laughs> Honey, forever is a long ass time. Exactly. Yeah, you're right. That's brilliant. Don't get me wrong. She absolutely should also be allowed to later on say fuck. <laughs> when when Todd's like, well, he's not going to hurt me. She should be allowed to just say he's a fucking dog. <laughs> but. Oh, dear. I'm just saying. Ass, ass is the halfway measure. Let <laughs> mama <ass>. say ass. <laughs> Did you spot the voice of Todd? It's Kurt Russell. No, no, that's grown-up copper. Baby Todd. Oh, right. oh he's um, Corey Feldman. He's a young Corey Feldman. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that makes complete sense. <laughs> this is Corey Feldman's time. It's the 80s. He cracked from his cocoon. Oh, dear. This is quite the star-studded cast, actually, though I don't know to what degree they were stars by now. I assume Mickey Rooney was big already, because yeah. otherwise he wouldn't have got this. Yeah, he absolutely He's was. He's charmless. He, he he showed up to do this movie because he had just finished another Disney movie. What was he doing? Pete's Dragon. Oh, I didn't know he was in Pete's Dragon. Yeah. And there you go. I thought that was more 70s as well. Oh, I, I, it would have been in production. Yeah, okay. Never mind. No mind. <laughs> Makes sense. Look, I, 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 I'm not good at time. <laughs> uh, and yes, Kurt Russell's in this because he was a child star from Disney in the 70s. He was in live action movies of like Boy on an Adventure with a Dog. I think he might have been the kid in Old Yeller. Oh, God. That would be a sad arc to follow. I don't know. I've never gotten any impression that Kurt Russell is having anything but a fucking blast with his adult career. <laughs> well, good on him, I guess. Uh, and, and of course, we, we noticed our friend Rum Patbutt. Yep. Uh, who is chief, of course. Yep. Man, he was in so many, he was so many Disney voices. Yeah. Somehow, uh, you remember how I talked about all the dialogue being wrong because I'd filled it out in my head before I ever saw the film? Somehow yeah. Chief was exactly right, though. Yeah. Maybe because he's got a lot of Sheriff of Nottingham in his appearance. Yeah. But, you know, that, that was the actual voice there. I can't fault that pick. Uh, I was surprised by how templated other movies' dialogue for kids felt <laughs> off this. Because this is the earliest 80s movie I think I've seen, like, consciously, that had children in it. And the kids in this talk like every child I've seen <laughs> in an 80s movie in my life. I that might just be zeitgeist, but it might be that they were like, well, yeah, you know, just copy the hawks on the hand. Yeah, it's, I mean, I don't think it was that influential. I don't think this is one of the ones where everyone was like, this this is the Disney. But I I don't know. I wasn't quite alive yet. It would have been easy for me to just totally miss any hype that uh, that actually surrounded this film, except for my beloved comic book. Um, 
But yeah, curious to know. I guess we'll find out more about that when we get to the hard swamp of capitalism. Yep. Um, <laughs> that's a that's a nice name. Vixie sounds so sarcastic <laughs> in a lot of her life. I love the idea that Vixie is just pure sarcasm all the time. I wish they'd done more with her as yeah. like someone who belongs in this forest meeting someone. You know, they call him a farm boy and make fun of how he doesn't know how to do wilderness stuff. Wouldn't it have been good to have her take the lead a bit on that? I think that would have been real cute. Yeah. You're like a you-know-nothing Jon Snow. Um, yeah, and by the way, she was voiced by a lady named Sandy Duncan. Right, and that's a name I know too. She was a, a not insignificant actor, right? Uh, y- yeah, but like, not in a bunch of stuff you'd seen. But you know where she does show up? She's in Rockadoodle. <laughs> <laughs> ah, and the circle is complete. <laughs> Chanticleer looms large over the Disney oeuvre. Will the circle be unbroken? I can draw a damn handsome rooster. By and by. Oh, I was hoping you'd do I another didn't... one-liner in there. I don't have another one. <laughs> oh, not in Nottingham. It's a one-note card that says, Just have the guts to do a song! Uh, it's going to be great when Disney discovers musicals. Uh, the movie was originally called and was originally advertised as The Fox and the Hounds. Oh, interesting. Uh, which is the name of the book. Yeah, um, that makes sense. And, like, the the marketing makes it look like it's about Copper and Todd. And, like, honestly, I feel that if they'd called it The Fox and the Hounds and they hadn't, like, pushed that angle so much in the advertising, I wouldn't be too surprised. Because, like, Chief is definitely a major character and Copper kind of recedes a little by the end of it, but... I don't know. Todd is definitely our our protagonist. Yeah. Uh, and and Copper is relevant as his best friend more than as his own character. But it's it's definitely Todd's story. Yeah. Um, I was gonna say Todd's the one who has an arc, but no, most characters have an arc in this, even if it's a stupid arc like Slade. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> I want to see a big list of all the shit that he swore never to do again before anyone treated him like a human being. You're going to jail. I want to see him going to jail for laying, for fucking poaching, for animal cruelty, for endangering wildlife, for fucking reckless handling of a firearm, occasioning in almost killing your neighbor. Yeah, there's there's so many different He's things that need to be addressed. Shit. Like. Maybe I just have a very limited sense of humor for gun funny. Mm-hmm. And by the way, while we're on that note, don't put a puppy in a sack, you fucking asshole. So there is a thing that I don't know where she got it from. Or maybe it's entirely her own imagination, listener. But Fox has a thing where occasionally in movies, she'll just start doing a little Spanish flea. <laughs> Oh, no, I'll tell you where I got it from. I got it from the commentary track on uh, Hot Fuzz. Right! Where the character gets uh, staged shot. And the the director is like, wouldn't it be great if we just ended the movie there and had little Spanish flea play? <laughs> yes! And that is stuck in my mind as the comedy bit for every, like, wouldn't it be fucking, like, dark humor hilarious if the movie just ended here? Yeah, and, and we had, when the bear attacked Amos, <laughs> we yeah. do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do. <laughs> Yeah, I, I would just have liked that ending better. Hard cut to black. The bear eats him. Tad and Copper are fine. <laughs> we don't need to tell you where they are because they're not here. They're not getting eaten by a bear. 
But they are getting mauled by a bear based on that fight scene. Like, I don't believe a dog or a fox would survive one good connected swipe oh, no. from a bear that size, who they no. have chosen to depict as black, but is very much grizzly sized. Yeah, that, that bear, bear is... might be polar bear sized. The, the bear shapeshifts. Like, there's a point where the bear's head is the size of copper. Yeah. Like, that's not a bear, that's a prehistoric animal. And, like, they do a lot of, like, you know, the bear swats them away and they roll or whatever, and they're clearly hurt, but they still get up. Like, realistically, a bear swipe like that crushes the skull of an animal that size. Yeah, when when, when Todd lands and rolls on the log and gets back up, everything about him should have shaken like a bag of maracas. (laughs) Like, all his bones are bits. I'm not saying I want to see our characters uh, cough up pieces of their own broken ribs, which have perforated (laughs) their lungs, but... I, I'm just saying you should have avoided having the bear really connect with anyone if you wanted to sell that. Yeah, yeah, the escalation into actual violence is the problem. I guess they had to because they couldn't do, like, a claw swipe because then you, you, you'd you yeah. be like, why was there no blood? Yeah. You kind of need scratch marks and blood to sell that idea, and they definitely weren't going to do that. Now, Blood ag- will show up in a Disney film, but not this one. Now, again, with the idea of that tension... Of, of, you know, the better version of this movie. Imagine if the bear never attacks and the whole thing is just the intense tension of Copper staring down a bear hmm. as the hunter, who's been deprived of guns somehow, fell over. He's, he's in a trap. Whatever. And there is this growing it's moment about where you know... the only bit of comic fucking justice in this movie. Yeah. And you have this growing tension in this moment where you know the bear is... The second that bear starts to move, Copper will probably die. And then having Tad, Tad, Todd burst out of the underbrush, and because because like bears, bears do not care about things that are too much effort. The bear here put in way too much work. The bear would go like, "Huh, both of you are annoying. F this, I'm out, deuces." <laughs> but instead, we got this movie, which you know, you know what it did. It, it's it's yeah, exactly. I mean, the bear is is a monster. It's yeah. not really a bear. And that's the other thing when we talk about this anthropic principle. Yeah, why isn't the bear a person? The as well? bear is an unperson. The bear has red, glowing eyes, hedgehogs, and badgers, and birds, and once again, even the caterpillar is more of a human than this big ass mammal. Which is to say, by the way, the bear speaks for me. <laughs> I do. I believe I hollered at the screen. The bear speaks for me. <laughs> yes. <sighs> yeah, that guy's a bastard. Sorry, I'm getting sidetracked again. Hey, uh, why is Big Mama sleeping at night? <laughs> they don't know what a fucking owl is. Later on, she sleeps during the day. She just sleeps all the time. She's just me and owl form. <laughs> just, nah, later, honey. Um, your mama needs to sleep. <laughs> she does web development for two hours a day and the rest is sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> That's how you get my best work. Uh, for all that I liked the way the badger was animated, he's kind of a racist. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's not that Todd was a fox. It's that Todd's not from around here. So he's xenophobic, really. Well, it's the South. You're not from around here is how sundown towns talk. <laughs> and by the way, if this isn't the South, like if this is meant to be like Boston or something, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, this is another one that I, in, in my child mind, had framed as being, you know, who cares yeah. what country it's in. But, you know, uh, looking back, it's, it's very obviously this part of America. Blah, 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 blah. I think it is actually the Appalachians. Like you have this whole snowy area where a furrier goes and hunts for a you know, three, what is it, six month period? Yeah, probably. They leave at the beginning of winter, they come back at the beginning of spring, so. Yeah. That's half a year, basically, isn't it? They're gone all summer. Yeah, which explains no, why. the opposite. Yeah, I know what you mean, though. No, it's only a month. It's not half a year. Sorry, it's only a season. It's not right. half a year. 
Yeah, three months. I, I'm bad at geography. It's all good. <laughs> and time. And the intersection of geography and time. It's the one where the collection of accents we are presented with is the most cohesive. Yeah. I'll say that. No one's British. <laughs> no one's British. And uh, no one is American despite being British or indeed French. Um, though we do have a sparrow who's from New York, apparently. That's Brooklyn, right? Yep. Yeah. It's not not quite Timothy Mouse, but you know, <laughs> I could hear Dinky saying Packy Dome. Um, don't fat shame an owl. I have, in fact, look, I, I have Big Mama fat shaming in my notes, and I thought, <laughs> no, no, I'm probably just overthinking it. <laughs> oh, it's, it's, it's not extensive, it's just the usual kind of offhanded, like, <laughs> women be worried about their weight. But, yeah. You know, the fact that it's so fucking ubiquitous is what makes me want to call it out every goddamn time, so don't fat shame a fucking owl. Oh, you, you're waiting for my final note? Are you done? Okay, my final note is just Vixie. Yeah, give him the shit. Yeah. <laughs> when he when he mouths off at her in a fashion he has clearly learned from his friend's shitty dad, you'll note, based on your thesis. Yep. And she's like, well, where do you get off? Yes. Good on her. I had a similar final note on Vixie, which is when she's counting the birds going past. <laughs> she says, six would be perfect. I was expecting her to then go and eat the seventh. <laughs> oh, did you take that as like a lunch order? Yeah, six would be about right. Yeah, like, you're a fucking fox. It's a quail. It, it, yeah, that was lunch on the go, that was. <laughs> and you know, as you observed about predation, we never see them eat after, no. after Don gets to the park. It's... He fails to catch a fish and then just stops being hungry, I guess. Yep. Oh, uh, well. <laughs> Good news, Madagascar is here to solve that problem. <laughs> <laughs> just eat fish. Fish on people. <laughs> okay. So. We finished with Whateverland. Oh. Sorry, I left some sparkles around. My bad. <coughs> it's like glitter. It gets everywhere. Yeah. <coughs> Would you like to talk about some capitalism? Yeah, let's do the thing. You gave me a real look earlier when I said that this film wasn't that influential. So, so you may have skewed my expectations a little. First point, just a just a detail here, because I know it's going to be like it's going to be one of those things where if you didn't know that, you're going to be like, oh, well, come on. Remember that the last budget we looked at was five million. Yeah, yeah, but I know they start escalating very quickly because by the Renaissance, we're spending up to a hundred million dollars on a film. So right. These they have to explode in a very small amount of time. An added detail is the rights for this movie were acquired when the book was fresh oh. in nineteen sixty-seven. Okay. So this hasn't necessarily been in development for. 14 years, <laughs> but it's been developed longer than most of them were. Right, right. And they obviously tried to polish it a lot harder than uh, than the sketchy ones. It's so pretty. Uh, it is. It's a really good looking movie. Um, maybe that's why I always thought it was so much older than it is. Like, maybe my brain put it into the, like, Sleeping Beauty, Lady in the yeah. Camp, predates the sketchy era stuff. Yeah, when we well, when we were doing the listing, you did have this reaction of, what do you mean it was from the 80s? Yeah, I thought this was a 60s movie. Yeah. It's, I mean, it, in my defense, I also think, aside from the music, which you'll remember I didn't have yeah. <laughs> for most of my experience with this movie, um, uh, the, the sound design is a bit more 80s, but the, the look and the feel and the storytelling and the little baby voices are all 
they feel very much older to me. Yeah. And I think they were trying to deliberately harken back to an earlier era of Disney stuff as well. That would be my guess. Especially if the people driving the uh, let's have fun and do swaggles era uh, had just bailed. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, okay. Uh, significant increase in budget, though. I think this might be the one that gets us to double digits. So I'm going to say at least 10 mil. Maybe like 12. Well, you get a little hat. It's 12. <gasps> it's 12! Ah! <laughs> oh! I got my guess right hat. Yeah. It returns 39 million in its first run at the box office. Hmm. It's not bad, but as a percentage of its budget, it's, uh... It tripled its budget. Yeah, but considering some of the ones we saw just a few episodes ago. Yeah, right, fine. Robin Hood kicked the doors down. Fine. <laughs> yeah, what do you yeah. want from me? Like, we saw them making that kind of return on half that budget. So That's true. I, I feel like that, like... I don't, that, obviously, that's not a failure. Yeah. But it's uh, it didn't make proportionately as much as they spent on it. It's true. And right now, in the 1980s, we have the rising specter of Reaganism and a very different American economy and the creation <laughs> of Disney TV. So there's a whole bunch of stuff oh moving around God. that's going to change budgets a lot. It's so weird to think of this film existing in the context of those things when I thought it was that much older. Like, it does not feel anything like what we're going to see coming out of the, the Disney-Reagan uh, uh, metamorphosis. Though, I have to say, the next couple of films definitely do feel like what we would see coming out of that. Uh-huh. <laughs> now, we're in the rare situation where we have contemporary critics that are both for and against this movie. <laughs> I'm not surprised. Like, this has that lush classic Disney look again. I feel like they're going to enjoy that. But, like, also given how impolite some of them have been about the sentimentality of <laughs> their movies, there's definitely going to be a couple of funless chodes who are like, this is maudlin soppy trash. See, you, you interrupted me because what I was going to finish that sentence with, and you will hate them both. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Oh, dear. Vincent Canby of the New York Times claimed the film breaks no new ground whatsoever and described it as a pretty relentlessly cheery, old-fashioned sort of Disney cartoon feature chock full of bouncy songs of an upbeatness that is stickier than crazy glue and played by animals more anthropomorphic than the humans that occasionally appear. Did, um... Did he watch Robin Hood instead? That's exactly what I was going to joke! That's exactly yeah, what I was going to say! I just feel like that guy didn't watch the movie. Like, chock full of bouncy songs? Relentlessly cheery? What the shitty hell, dude? Did you just watch the first half and call it a day? <laughs> I... But where were the songs in the first half? There's one! Uh, there's a couple of songs. <laughs> Good God. So, Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times, well-known video game expert, said, praising the film, for all of its familiar qualities, this movie marks something of a departure for the Disney studio, and its movement is in an interesting direction. The Fox and the Hound is one of those relatively rare Disney animated features that contains a useful lesson for its younger audiences. Oh, don't know about that. It's not cute adventures and frightening animals and a happy ending. It's also a thoughtful meditation on how society determines our behavior. I mean, he's cut. I feel like he watched the film that this wanted to be. Yeah. Like, 
I don't think in the end it got that across especially well, but I think that his brain probably filled in the message that should have been conveyed strongly. Yep. <laughs> and I, I do, like, he's definitely right about it being a departure and, and a new direction and definitely a more somber feeling kind of, uh, kind of take. Yep, for sure. Especially compared to the stuff that came recently, which once again has been mostly about having fun and doing swaggles. Yeah, it, it is pretty, um, like, there's no, there's no getting around it. This movie, there is a soul of a better movie here. And we've talked about that and we've hurt about that. And now I'm just sad and I want to move on. Oh. <sighs> Well, would it make you feel better if we went back to when there were babies? <laughs> <laughs> and we took a sidetrack where they join a band and Reba McIntyre's there. All right. So here's an important thing for people to know. This podcast is not directly Patreon sponsored. Like I have a Patreon, but it's for all my web content. Yeah. And it's not my Patreon. If we get donations asking for it. <laughs> I will attempt to bully Fox into a sequels and midquels rewatch. I'll do it. We'll have to find your price. I've already seen all of them. You'll be the one who's breaking new ground. Don't give it away. Ah! <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, whatever you do, don't throw me in the briar patch. <laughs> With piles and piles of money. <laughs> all right, so what's coming up next? Uh, well, we only have a few more films before we reach the heady days of the Disney Renaissance. Mm-hmm. Uh, which means I think the next one has gotta be that film that almost killed the studio. Mm. The Black Cauldron. Yes! Right? Here we go. Is it really as bad as everyone thought it was at the time? Spoiler. No, but it's not good. <laughs> I mean, find out next time! <laughs> Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-mm-